0: You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. Three, two, one. We are gathered here as advisors as scientists. I'm something of a witch. Welcome to a special Valentine's Day inspired episode of Mission Spooky. This is your host for today, Kiki, and I'm flying solo as Kayla, cord and JC have the week off while we prepare for season five. Speaking of seasons, season four will officially end with a special President's Day episode of cord vs. Cryptid, and season five will officially start on March 12th, 2024. As a special thanks for tuning in today, I've got a sneak peek at Season 5 for you. We'll be covering some Dungeons & Dragons talk in a Paranormal Dungeon episode on bar guests and other canine creatures from folklore that appear in D&D. That's going to be a lot of fun. On the regular show, we're going to be covering topics such as cannibalism, stolen bones and bodies. That's definitely going to be from an archaeological perspective. And a bunch of stories from Pennsylvania's Potter County uh, which is one of, if not the creepiest and most beautiful places in the whole state. With all the research and prep that we've been doing for season five, I've been getting an extra energy boost from this new little matcha green energy shot that's called Magic Mind. Now, the concept behind Magic Mind is that you take it with your coffee in the morning and it's going to boost that AM caffeine and carry further into the day without having to drink eight to, you know, 12 cups of coffee like I was doing. Magic Mind includes herb supplements that I'm already taking, such as B-Complex, and I take turmeric for my arthritis. Yes, I'm old. JC's not just making jokes about it. It's real. Anyway, it's got lion mane mushroom, ashwagandha, cordyceps mushrooms. So I'm getting all that in one quick shot instead of taking them all separately. And I've been taking Magic Mind for, jeez, about four or five weeks now. I say it's improved my overall mood and my ability to stay on task, which is super important right now gearing up for season five so seeing how it worked well for me i thought i'd team up with the folks at magic mind and get you listeners a special offer so through the rest of the week they've added an extra week in here for us you can get one month free when you subscribe for at least three months let's go into our linked website at www.magicmind.com slash jan mission spooky so slash j-a-n mission spooky all one word and if you add code Mission Spooky at checkout, you get an additional 20% off. And that checkout code can be used on any order of Magic Mind. And we'll have the links and the code in our show notes for you. So who's ready for a love story? Well, if you are, you came to the right place. Well, kind of. This is a tale of a fanciful yet cold and calculating girl of privilege. This tragedy is often referred to as the Cherry Hill Murder. As for the prominent New York family in this story, I'm going with the pronunciation of Rensselaer, or Rensselaer, or Rensselaer. See, it's got a bit more of a punch to it, rather than the what someone would say is the complete bastardization of the last name that New Yorkers have chosen, Rensselaer. Sorry, folks, it's, it's a Dutch name, got a little bit of more flair to it. Y'all have decided to say it however you wanted to. As with any language, it is what it is, but don't come at me because I've chosen to say it with a little bit more flair. (laughs) I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, okay? (laughs) Love you, New York. You say it however you want, okay? I've heard this story told a few times, but never exactly from the perspective I'm sharing with you today. As my grandfather used to jokingly say, all man's troubles start with a woman. Unfortunately, in this case, it's not a joke. Elsie Lansing began her troublesome ways at a young age. In his autobiography, Robert Wincube Lansing describes Elsie as a truly beautiful girl with little aspirations of scholarly ventures. According to family records, she had lost both her father and mother before the age of 15. Abraham Lansing, her uncle, became her guardian, and she was the sole heir to his estate, as his own wife had died and he had no living children. According to Robert, Elsie spent most of her time gallivanting with her friends. She would invite them through a little traversed rear entrance to play in the stables in the backyard. This doesn't seem to be a terrible offense, but for a young girl who was to inherit a large sum of money, It appears that Uncle Abe expected more from his young ward. He became so distressed that she chose to neglect her studies and run amok that he began nailing her windows and doors shut. Rarely was she left alone for too long, someone always watching her every move to keep her in line. Those around her, including Robert Lansing, would observe that the restrictions laid upon the teenage girl merely led to her railing against her adult captives, which led to an extreme decision. John Whipple boarded next door to her uncle's home, and was described by Robert Lansing as, quote, "a gentleman in all respects, an honest, upright, intelligent and laborious man, highly respected and admired by all who knew him." He and Elsie became friends, and then, according to Robert Lansing, Elsie attached herself to him in a quote, "lecherous fashion." John Whipple would find himself madly in love with the 15-year-old and devise a plan for her escape which included running away and eloping with him, a.k.a. the fastest way to freedom for a 15-year-old girl in the 1820s. Robert Lansing recalled how he and his brother tried to stop the elopement from happening as Robert's father and Abraham Lansing, Elsie's guardian, were, quote, familiar old cronies. But in the end, they knew the marriage had probably taken place the evening before in Troy, New York, and so there was no sense in running after the two lovers. Abraham Lansing was not a happy man at this point. His protege, having married Whipple, nine years older than herself, was now on her, quote, own. But rather than her inheriting his fortune, Mr. Whipple was now in charge of it by way of the marriage. He naturally accused John of marrying Elsie for the money and having no real interest in her happiness. In due course, the Whipples found themselves moving to the beautiful and prestigious home known as Cherry Hill in Albany, New York. The Lansing family was related to Philip P. von Rensselaer, Elsie being his wife's niece. According to Robert Lansing, Philip had owned the previous property in which Abraham Lansing boarded with Elsie. When Philip decided to sell out there and move to Cherry Hill, Abraham was invited to move there as well. And since Elsie was also connected to the Van Rensselaer family, she and her new husband became boarders at Cherry Hill. Cherry Hill was the family residence of the Van Rensselaers. Originally built in 1787, roughly 43,560 square feet in property includes a spacious Georgian-style home. The previous descendants had filled the house with all the finest objects of the time, including Chippendale furniture, the finest porcelain, silver, and great works of art. While the Whipples and Abraham resided here, there were at least 14 other people living in the home, including Philip and his family, servants, and workers. By this time, John Whipple has also proven himself to be an amazing and hard-working husband, and a businessman. He took Elsie's inheritance. And from what family records indicate, rather than spend it frivolously, he had grown it into a small fortune. John was the captain and owner of a sloop and had been traveling between Albany and New York City as a merchant's vessel. Living at Cherry Hill meant that Elsie was never alone while he was away, and she would always have help in raising their first child, a son. It would seem that both John and Elsie should be happy with this arrangement. Elsie, having much more freedom and living in a gorgeous home, and her husband, proving to everyone that he truly cared for her and had definitely not married her so he could just sit around and live off her inherited wealth. Elsie would destroy this perceived happiness. Perhaps her privileged life had led her to sheer boredom. Some might say that her rash decision at 15 meant that she had never had the chance to live out her teenage years properly. Whatever the reason, it is out of pure selfishness that she began a new relationship with a man hired to work at Cherry Hill named Joseph Orton. When Orton arrived at Cherry Hill, the Rensselaers thought they knew everything there was to know about him. He was the son of a respectable farmer of Dutchess County, New York, and he was about 29 years old when he was first hired, a year after Elsie and John moved to Cherry Hill. But he did have some secrets of his own to keep. Some accounts suggest that Orton had seen Elsie before taking the job at Cherry Hill. Tour guides today at the mansion now tell how Joseph, traveling from Putnam County, found himself at the local bar, Bates Tavern, after his luggage was accidentally sent south. Elsie and her cousin were there flirting and being a bit rambunctious. Joseph is supposedly smitten with her immediately, and he boasted that he would one day be with her. He took a job at Cherry Hill in order to be closer to her and possibly fulfill his fantasy. Other accounts of the affair suggest that Elsie, out of the blue, asked Joseph to write a love letter to her. She in turn wrote a letter back stating her true affection for him and ending the letter with, quote, I remain your true and affectionate lover until death separates us. Either way, an intense affair between the two begins with a string of letters back and forth delivered by servants and sometimes the Van Rensselaer children. Although it was near impossible for the two to engage in physical intimacy with a house full of people, Joseph would later tell of at least one opportunity in which they engaged in, quote, criminal intercourse. By the spring of 1827, Elsie and Joseph began to construct a plan to run away together. Elsie decided they needed at least $1,200 to begin a new life, but her husband had total control over her money. At this point, I have to ask myself if she had been a clever girl she could have simply asked for a little money here and there for items and then saved up over time but by all accounts one thing that elsie never seemed to be was patient or clever she decided to take matters into her own hands and bought arsenic in albany john enjoyed a tonic every day and elsie thought that administering the arsenic in his drink would undoubtedly kill him keep in mind This is the man who, for all intents and purposes, saved her from her cruel guardian and made her an even richer woman through hard work and dedication. He's also just about to complete a contract connected with the Hudson and Delaware Canal, the construction of which he'd already had a hand in. At this point, they also had an eight-year-old son, Abraham Dow Lansing Whipple. In both family and public records, there's absolutely no reason that she'd want to kill her husband other than for the selfish motivation of wandering across the country with a new sexual conquest found in Joseph Orton. Naturally, Elsie doesn't want to be implicated in her husband's death. And there are some conflicting records about whether or not she or Joseph asked a one Dinah Jackson, the last slave working under the Van Rensselaers, to administer the poison to John for her. So there's two accounts of this particular incident. One says that, according to testimony that she'll give later, it's Joseph that approached her asking to do the deed. When she declined, he laughed it off as a joke. This incident is happening in May, and New York is going to be abolishing all slavery in the state in July. If indeed it was Elsie that approached Dinah, this wouldn't have been the first time that a member of the Van Rensselaer family had attempted to blame or involve a slave in criminal activity for the benefit of a family member. But that's a story for another time. It could have very well been that Dinah threw Joseph under the bus in order to keep things copacetic with Elsie and the Van Rensselaer family, as she does not leave the employee of the family even after she's freed. Regardless, the poison does not work. It results only in cramps and stomach issues for John. Not only that, but since Elsie was in charge of making the tonic each day, John may have suspected something was amiss as he demanded that both she and her son drink the same tonic. There may have been at least one time that her son drank it or that she considered giving it to him because she asked what she should do if the boy ended up being poisoned. With arsenic not being sufficient, the treacherous couple contemplated hiring a contract killer from Montreal. Cost of $300 was well out of Joseph's pay scale of only $13 a month, and so that idea was quickly eliminated. It is finally decided that Joseph will have to kill John himself if he wants to be with Elsie. The couple decides to start some rumors that someone connected to the canal construction wants John Whipple dead. Joseph even goes so far as to tell everyone in the house that he's seen strange and dangerous looking men lurking around the property. On May 7th, 1827, around 9 p.m., John Whipple was sitting at his desk. Putting paperwork in order for his departure from Albany, possibly to discuss canal business. In the room with him was Philip von Rensselaer's son, also named Abraham. As John arose from his desk, back turned to the window, a shot rang out, shattering the glass. According to Abraham von Rensselaer, John exclaimed, My God, what was that? and made for the door at the head of the stairs. He descended only a few steps before he fell backward, dead. The ball from the shot had cut through his left clavicle, struck an artery of the heart, and bounced into his right lung, lodging itself there. In all the confusion, no one in the household was able to ascertain exactly what had happened, nor did they attempt to chase after any culprit. At one point, the von Rensselaers deliberately instructed no one in the family to go outside, nor did they send anyone to check for intruders because they were fearful someone else would be shot and killed. When the family and workers decided it was safe enough for anyone to leave the house, the police and coroner were finally fetched. There was clear evidence that someone had used crates to ascend to the roof of the woodshed in the rear of the house, overlooking the room in which John was shot. At the time the gun was fired, the killer would not have been more than three or four yards from the victim. In the darkness, the killer could easily see their prey inside the lit room, while no one inside the room would have been able to see the intruder. The killer was also barefoot, and the tracks could be traced along the roof of the shed and from some distance from the house. The coroner began the inquest in which all the able-bodied men of the house tried to ascertain how John died and exactly what had happened. Joseph Orton is among those men in the inquest. However, Joseph is a bit too helpful. In his attempt to feign distress over John's death, he gives away a bit too much. With almost 20 people living at Cherry Hill, the affair the couple thought was so secret was actually noticed by more than they thought. With a small hill of then circumstantial and yet compelling evidence, two days after the inquest, Joseph Orton was arrested for the murder of John Whipple. In a romantic, star-crossed lover's trope, Elsie promised Joseph that the two would go down together, and if he hanged, so would she. Joseph, perhaps truly in love with Elsie, admitted to the whole affair, including that it was he that constructed the entire murder plot. Rather than attempt to save Joseph from swinging alone, Elsie immediately said, yes, the whole murder was his alone, and that she had nothing to do with any of the murder plot nonsense. In truth, Joseph believed that if he confessed, Elsie would do so as well, and that they would both receive a lighter sentence due to her family connections. When his lawyers told him otherwise, he retracted his confession. As the trial began, Joseph is forced to reveal his huge secret, one that he may have told Elsie, and that is that his real name is Jesse Strang. While his family was indeed respectable farmers of Dutchess County, New York, he had abandoned a wife and children, leaving them behind to start a new life in Ohio. There, he eventually faked his own death and took on the new identity of Joseph Orton. Unfortunately, this only makes him appear to be more guilty of constructing a murder plot, while making Elsie look like she's been taken in by a nefarious thief only after her money and power. At least, that's how the court is going to see it. During his trial, Jesse Strang told his side of the story, implicating Elsie almost every step of the way. It is she who devised the poison plot, although he says that he bought the arsenic. She tried to give him a pistol to shoot her husband. Strang admits to preferring rifles and ultimately purchasing a $25 flintlock in order to do the deed. She has him practice shooting through glass, as it was her idea to have him shoot from the woodshed roof through the window. She bought him socks, so his shoe prints would not be traced. Strang explained how he jumped off the shed and ran into the ravine behind the house to bury the rifle. He put his coat and boots on outside and snuck back into the house, where he pretended to be shocked that John Whipple had been killed. He was the one sent to get the coroner and was then sworn in as a member of the inquest. Jesse Strang is sentenced to death by hanging. Elsie's trial was the next day, and she was charged with accessory before the murder. The DA wanted to have Strang admitted as a witness against Elsie. Judge Dewar, presiding over the case, decided to oppose the motion on the grounds that Strang was now a convicted killer of an infamous crime and that it was up to the court's discretion if he was necessary in her case. What Judge Dewar really meant to say was that Elsie was above the law. She was old money. Her relative, Solomon von Rensselaer, was a politician and general in the War of 1812. He spoke on her behalf and basically suggested that she was not capable of constructing such a heinous and calculated crime. Dinah Jackson, now a free woman, was allowed to testify that indeed Elsie did have something to do with the poison plot long before the shooting. However, her testimony will not be taken seriously either. As Robert Lansing put it, quote, Mrs. Whipple then went scot-free, but the prevailing opinion was entertained that she was equally guilty and ought to have suffered the severe penalty of the law. I was at the trial. End quote. Robert also suggested that he knew there was more evidence against Elsie, but he never wrote more about that in his autobiography. Instead, he painted a picture of her based on his own observations and knowing her from child to adulthood. He described her as, quote, no more than 26 years of age, possessed of beauty and fortune, though without much education, and miserably defective in principle. Vain, weak, frivolous, wanton, and inconstant in character, and in conduct, impudent, silly, lewd, presumptuous, treacherous, and guilty, no doubt, to some extent for the murder of her husband. End quote. He went on to suggest that in the eyes of the law, all of these faults made her the victim, merely an instrument to Strang's villainy. Jesse Strang would, I believe, unfairly hang alone on August 24th, 1827. It was a grotesque show, a crowd of at least 30,000 appearing to watch. A pamphlet entitled The Confession of Jesse Strang, Made to C. Pepper Esquire, was sold at the event, the proceeds of which helped the Strang family pay for his lawyers. Unfortunately, Strang's hanging was butchered. The fall did not break his neck, and he suffered greatly, slowly suffocating for just over a half an hour this would be the last public execution in Albany. Elsie eventually remarried a man named Nathaniel Freeman, but he died suddenly. She would only live five years total after Strang's death. Robert Lansing finishes his chapter on the Cherry Hill murder by stating, quote, she lived miserably and died unhappy. Thus concludes your very special Valentine's Day love story, Gone Terribly Wrong. Or does it? Today, Cherry Hill stands as a historic site, its lovely yellow wood planking glowing in the summer sun with a backdrop of gorgeous flowers and ample garden space to enjoy a picnic during operating hours. But every once in a while, even during those beautiful, hot summer days, a cold chill lingers in the upstairs room. Is it John Whipple? Wandering the hallway trying to figure out what happened to him on that terrible night? Or is it Jesse Strang, just outside the window, gazing in and contemplating the poor life choice that led him to the hangman's noose? Maybe that's up to you to discover. Thanks for joining me today for this special episode of Mission Spooky as we wrap up the end of Season 4. As I said, we've got one more Core versus Cryptid, and then we'll be off for three weeks, returning on March 12th. And since you've stayed and listened this far... I'm going to tell you the first episode of Season 5. We're going to be joined once again for an interview with Michelle Bollinger discussing her new book, The Lonely House. Thank you all again for making Season 4 such a success, and we can't wait to bring you another year of Mission Spooky. As always, stay spooky and don't die, but if you do, contact us.